So, we're in the book of Judges. Part 7 of our journey through the book of Judges begins today. And for the benefit of those of you whose memories are like mine, and I forget things easily, and those of you joining us for the first time today, here's what you kind of need to know about what's happening in the story The people of Israel in the book of the Judges finds themselves in very turbulent times. In fact, you will see some of the most self-destructive behavior anywhere in the Bible in this story. The story of the Judges is the story of the settlement period. If Joshua is the conquest of the land, Judges is the settlement, is finishing what Joshua started. Joshua did most of the legwork. He defeated most of Israel's enemies. And so this is the settlement period. But unfortunately, the people of Israel during the settlement, pe- during the settlement period are going to settle, both literally and figuratively. They're going to settle. They will not drive out the few nations that remain. Rather, they're going to just settle in and alongside of them. And as a result, the theme that runs start to finish in this book is the Canaanization of Israel. That's the theme. They're living in the land of Canaan, and unfortunately they're going to become like the people around them. And that's not good. They're supposed to be different as the people of God. The people of God, we're supposed to be different, church. And this is their struggle. And so they will settle, literally and figuratively, and become more like the people around them. And as a result of that, their heart will wander from God, and we will see these cycles of oppression in which God will raise up foreign nations. They will come, they will oppress Israel. Israel will cry out to God, and God will hear their cry, raise up a judge, a deliverer, a savior, and drive away the enemy threat to give the people peace, to give the land rest. And things will be good, for a while, and then the cycle will repeat itself, each time worsening, each time things getting a little darker. Well, that is our introduction today. Uh, that's is Mark's part seven, and uh, we are in verse 31, just verse 31. I'll go ahead and read it. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat, and he also saved Israel. So here's our next judge, deliverer, savior, who appears on the scene. His name is Shamgar. And when we think of stories in the book of the Judges, you probably think of Samson or Gideon. Most people don't think of Shamgar. In fact, you might be hearing about Shamgar for the very first time right now. And it's very understandable. There's not a lot to say about Shamgar other than this one verse, and he pops up in chapter 5 in Deborah's song. Uh, kind of just an aside mention, there's not a lot of information about Shamgar. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon about Shamgar, and uh, I imagine many of you might be in the same boat that I'm in. But the fact that the story is so brief has led many commentators, well, some commentators, to suggest that this is a late insertion in the text, and that we should dismiss it all in, in its entirety from an authentic authentication point of view. I didn't practice saying that word ahead of time, and I butchered it right there. (laughs) My apologies. But because the story is so brief, because it has this kind of unconventional, unconventional literary nature that omits the typical narrative cycle, and the narrative cycle is where God raises up the foreign enemy, 
they beat Israel up for a while, Israel cries out, then he raises up the deliverer, and then they drive out the, that threat. For that reason, and for how brief it is, many have argued that we should just dismiss the story of Shamgar altogether. Well, I think the fact that I'm talking about it right now shows you that I have no plans to dismiss the story of Shamgar. Uh, rather, quite the opposite. But there are still many questions that we have to ask about Shamgar. Like, when is this taking place? That would be really helpful if we knew that. Who he is, also helpful. And how in the world does he manage to kill 600 Philistines with an ox goat, an ox prod that you prod the oxen along? How does that happen? And what are the effects? What are the effects? What's the so what part of this story? And this verse is a little bit of a riddle. There's not a lot to say. There's not a lot of information out there. And uh, I really wasn't sure when I first started working on this sermon if I was going to be able to preach an entire sermon on one verse. But, well, we'll see how it goes maybe 40 minutes from now. So, what we're going to have to do to really squeeze this verse like a sponge is we're going to have to rely upon external evidence. That's what we're going to have to do. Extra biblical sources and material to try to sketch out a narrative to paint maybe uh, some more details into this. And I will say that at the end of this, if you're not convinced, that's okay. There is a certain degree of speculation that I will be presenting today, um, but we kind of have to do that. But um, I will uh, point out different clues in the text, and uh, we'll go from there and see if we can't get a better picture of who this man Shamgar is. The first clue that we're going to see happens in the phrase, after him. Now that might just seem like an ordinary two words, after him, but it actually, I think, is going to give us a clue on the timeline. Because it creates the question, after who? After him. Him being who? Well, we would surmise to say it's probably after the previous judge that was mentioned, that was Ehud. And if you weren't here for the Ehud sermon, that was a lot of fun. Also on Apple iTunes podcast, search Lynchburg City Church. Uh, you'll understand why when you get there. Those two words provide us with a helpful, at least, beginning of a timeline after him, Ehud. Well, how soon after Ehud, we can't say. Was it after the 80 years of peace that the land experienced at the end of verse 30 of chapter 3? Maybe. Don't know for sure, we just know that chronologically it would seem to be that Shamgar appears more toward the time of Ehud than he does Samson or someone else, coupled with the fact that in chapter 5, in Deborah's song, that she mentions Shamgar. It seems to be that Shamgar is a contemporary of Deborah who comes on the scene right after Ehud as well. And so that phrase, after him, will help us. It will be the first clue in piecing together when did this take place. And why that's of the utmost importance will be clear momentarily. The second clue that we have is his name, Shamgar, the son of Anath. What does that tell us? Well, most likely, Shamgar, the son of Anath, is a dedicatory expression. And by a dedicatory expression, I mean we understand it as Shamgar, not whose dad's name is Anath, but rather Shamgar, who is in the service of Anath. Anath, in Canaanite mythology, Anath was the spouse of Baal, the Canaanite god of the storm. She was the goddess of war. And it is a designation that appears all throughout extra-biblical sources. 
In fact, we find it in the Mari, the Ugarit, the Egyptian text, this designation, son of Anath. And when that designation appears, it refers most instances to those serving in some type of military operation as one associated with this goddess, Anath, the Canaanite goddess of war. Now, such a designation, coupled with the fact that, oh, by the way, Shamgar, his name, is not an Israelite name whatsoever, it's a non-Israelite name, seems to make it clear that this individual that we're discussing about right now isn't ethnically Israeli. He's not an Israelite whatsoever. He's a foreigner. Well, here we begin to sketch out more of this narrative. Shamgar, the son of Anath. But remember, we said in the opening phrase, after him, we were able to establish somewhat of a chronological timeline. That, and as we said, the mention of Shamgar in the fifth chapter of the Judges as a contemporary of Deborah. Well, when we understand and look at parallel historical accounts outside the Bible, we remember, some of you I'm sure do, that at the beginning of the 19th dynasty, Anath was actually accepted, this Canaanite goddess of war, into the Egyptian pantheon. She functioned as the goddess, the personal protectress of the pharaoh. Well, that's nice, but... Also, we learn that the Egyptians had a special military unit, a specialized military unit that was named after this Canaanite goddess of war that was made up of non-Egyptian mercenaries, of men potentially like Shamgar. And oh, by the fact, oh, by, by the way, rather, that Ramses III, between 1198 and 1166, battled against the sea peoples, the Philistines. Well, as I said, that first clue is very helpful. After him was Shamgar, which has led some scholars and commentators to argue not just, I think, it's possible that Shamgar is not an Israelite. I think it's more than possible, if not probable, but that Shamgar may have been one of these mercenaries who served in this specialized Egyptian unit that was named after the Canaanite goddess of war, and that that would make sense and explain why he was fighting against the Philistines, because during Ramses III reign, which lines up with this time period, they fought against the Sea Peoples during the early settlement years. So that would explain, if this is the case, and I understand that much of this is speculation, it would explain at least why he was fighting, when he was fighting, and where he was fighting. And, oh, by the way, he seems to be, at this point in the story, unintentionally serving the interest of the Israelites. Unintentionally. Once again, I know this is out of the ordinary. We have to lean upon extra-biblical information. There's just not a lot in the Bible for us to learn more about Shamgar. So, it seems, and I'd say, uh, it would... It would was he not an Israelite? Yeah, that's probably the case. Did he serve in this specialized Egyptian mercenary unit made up of non-Egyptians fighting the Philistines at this time? Possibly. Okay, it's possible. It certainly is. But at the very least, I think we find a non-Israelite mercenary type of soldier who's fighting against the sea peoples, the Philistines, and it, it serves the Israelites. I don't think Shamgar is doing this with the intention to serve the Israelites. But... God knows what he's doing. Shamgar may not know that in defeating 600 Philistines that he is going to benefit the covenant people of God, but 
God knows exactly what he's doing. And that's the point. The point of the story is that his heroics are going to benefit the people of Israel. They're going to relieve this pressure that was experienced most likely during the early settlement period when the Philistines begin to encroach upon Israelite territory. But the one thing that's interesting in this story is the narrator is silent upon the role of God. What's God's role in this story? It doesn't say. It doesn't say what the role of God is. It doesn't say at all. It says in other stories. It doesn't say in this story. And he may well have interpreted Shamgar's actions as a sign of divine intervention. And we know that we have a sovereign God who's involved in the details of life. He's aware even if a sparrow should fall from the sky. So let me be clear. While the narrator doesn't mention what God's perspective is in this story, while he doesn't interpret for us the role of God, rather it's silent, we know that God is involved in this story. But what I think our final clue that we look at is that last phrase. And he also saved Israel. See that? He also saved Israel. Shamgar saved Israel. The narrator, Samuel, or whoever it may be, is identified as a savior of Israel. He is identified as a deliverer of Israel. He's put in the same category as all the other deliverers, as all the other saviors. And that is interesting, especially if he is, in fact, a non-Israelite. But then there's the question, why, why do we only have one verse about this guy? Why do we have one verse about this guy if he's placed in the same category as the other deliverers, the other saviors, men like Ehud, Men like Othniel, if he's placed in the same category, why only one verse? I've asked myself that many times. And the fact is, is if he is not an Israelite, if he simply appears on the scene, maybe fighting in this specialized military unit that the Egyptians had named after Anath, or however else he ends up fighting against the Philistines, and he's not an Israelite, he simply appears on the scene, defeats the, the Philistines and leaves, then it would stand to reason that the narrator may not have any other information about this man. If he wasn't, in fact, an Israelite. I mean, he can't just go and do some sort of Google search or something. So part of the reason that we only have such little information about Shamgar is the fact, and stands to reason, would make sense, is he doesn't have any other information about him doesn't have any information because he's not an Israelite. If my hypothesis, if my speculation is accurate, that, that would make sense. But I think there's also another reason. And my other reason is the fact that this is, if what we have thrown around so far is accurate, then there's some embarrassment here. I, never, I don't know if you've thought of this verse being, well, that's kind of embarrassing. But let's think about it. If what I'm saying is true, then this very much so is embarrassing. Because what you have here is you have Israel totally depending upon a foreign person like Shamgar to do the very thing that they should be doing. 
and it becomes another example of the canonization of Israel, where here is Israel supposed to be driving out the foreign threat, and they're not. They're settling, literally, figuratively, not obeying God, not doing what he said for them to do to finish the job that Joshua started. And it's embarrassing. And I'm not sure even if the narrator had more information if he'd want to share that. You think about embarrassing stories in your own life, usually not ones you want other people to know about. You say, oh, it's a funny story, Joe. I don't mind sharing. Well, if it's funny, if it's humorous, it's not really altogether that embarrassing. But if this really is an embarrassing story, okay, then there may be shame associated with it. Now, I don't want everybody to know all the details. I'll tell them, this is what happened. Here it is, right there. And that's it, okay? I don't want to go into the details. It wasn't our finest, wasn't my finest moment. Boom, there it is. And I think that too is certainly plausible within the context and the parameters of the story. Here's Israel, not at one of their finest moments. And this story, like I said, as brief as it is, in some ways has its own foreshadowing of the problem that comes in the area of leadership and responsibility for the people of God. If I had three words to describe this story today, I'd use, I think I'd use embarrassment, leadership, and responsibility. That is, it's embarrassing to see the lack of leadership and personal responsibility of the people of God. Why is Shamgar out fighting the Philistines? Why aren't the Israelites out fighting the Philistines? If he's not an Israelite, which I think there's good evidence to suggest, at the very least, he's not, why is he out there? I get it that he's doing this unintentionally, probably. Why are the Israelites out fighting? And of course, this is part of the problem of the entire story. Israel is becoming more like the nations around them. They are settling. They're not doing the things that God has called them to do, namely to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And so in many ways, this story foreshadows the failure in the area of leadership, the failure in the area of personal responsibility that's to come. I mean, Q, Deborah, and Barak, for example. Okay, this is going to be felt heavily in the next story. Because Shamgar, in all reality, I'm not so sure that he should be a judge. I'm not so sure Shamgar should be a deliverer. I'm not convinced that he should be one of Israel's saviors. Yet as the people become more like the world around them, it becomes this humbling reality to have as we see to it, through a large degree of speculation, mind you, of a pagan, foreigner, non-follower of Yahweh, the true God, come and do the work for them. But as I already mentioned with the Deborah and Barak incident that's going to take place in the next chapter... At this time in Israel, there doesn't seem to be anyone who's willing to step up. There doesn't seem to be anyone in Israel who's willing to take personal responsibility. The story is an embarrassing story, if it is as I've outlined for us. It's an embarrassment to the people. No one is going to step up and go kill those Philistines? You know what God has told you to do? Kill the Philistines. They've encroached upon your land. No one's going to step up and do that. No volunteers. And I'd argue from that perspective, it can also serve as an indictment and a warning against many of us today. Many of us today who've grown too comfortable, 
Many of us today who've grown dependent upon others to do the very things we should be doing. And, and maybe, strictly speaking, it's not an issue of depending upon, I don't know, a pagan foreigner to do the things, the task. Okay, I'm not so much speaking in that immediate context, but I think this happens even in our own setting of the local church. And we see it as a failure of leadership. We see it as a failure of personal responsibility. You know, people come, and they kind of expect, they expect the leaders, they expect the pastors to pretty much do everything. Okay? There's 600 Philistines. Ah, let Joe do it. No one's ever said that, but... Or goes a step further. Thinking, like shotgun-blessed applications. I don't need to read my Bible because Joe's going to unpack the Bible for us on Sunday. You say, I've never ever said that about Joe or any other pastor or leader. I've never even thought that. And so I'd say, well, when was the last time you opened your Bible? And you're like, well, hey, hold on a second, right? See, a lot of us, we don't even have to say it. We don't have to think it. I don't care whether you say it. I don't care whether you think it. The fact that your actions are clear enough. The pastor will teach me the Bible. I'll open the Bible. I'll get to it there, right? At a later time. I don't need to share my faith. Somebody else in the church can share their faith. Somebody else can be the person that invites people to come into our fellowship, into our gatherings, into our community. I don't need to do that. Let someone else do that. But my job as one of the leaders here is not to do all the work for you. It's not. I don't think this story is an exceptionally positive one. My job is not to go and be a shamgar for you. If we understand this story and the fact that it is an embarrassment and they're not doing what they should be doing. My job is not to go and do all the work for you and if that's the case, I'm failing you. I am failing you. See, my job, according to Ephesians 4.12, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. If I go and do all the work for you, I'm robbing you. I'm stealing from you. I am robbing you from the opportunity to use your spiritual gifts to build up the church. If you're a Christian, God's given you spiritual gifts. If Jesus has saved you, he's given you spiritual gifts. And those are not primarily for yourself. They're for the people to your left and right. They're for the local church. I don't mean the dorm. I mean the church. I don't mean prayer groups. I mean the church. You see where I'm going pretty clear right now? It's for the church, right? For the people of God. And so many people say, oh, let someone else do that. I don't want to be the person. Just pass it off. There's 600 Philistines. They need to be killed. Ah, let someone else do it. And so this raises a very important question. And the question is, is if we understand this to be Israel's failure in this story, if it is, okay, and I, I understand there's speculation here. There's an if. But if what I'm saying is accurate and true, then it raises the question, in order to not be like the people of Israel, what is it that we need to be doing? The embarrassment in the story is the embarrassment of leadership and personal responsibility. 
So I'd start there with leadership. And a lot of people struggle with this. They use it as an excuse sometimes, but sometimes they just need some encouragement. Some of you in here, you need some encouragement right now. They say, I'm a really good encourager. So I'll encourage you. I think some of you, maybe you struggle when it comes to leadership because you feel like maybe something in your past or something someone said to you or how old you are or the stage of life you're in that, well, you can't be a leader. Or maybe it's that you have a misconception of leadership. Maybe your misconception is, I'm not a leader unless I stand on this stage. I'm not a leader unless I'm in some visible role. So whether it's a misunderstanding or whether it's you just need some encouragement, the fact is, is any one of us can step in and fill the gap. Any one of us can step in and fill the gap. What's the need? Ah, 600 Philistines are encroaching on our land. I wish someone would kill them. What's the need? There's a young girl who is at the church and she needs to be able to go and get medication from the store. She doesn't have a car. She's been so sick she can't even do laundry. There's a need, right? Sometimes leadership is not even, not even seeing that need, right? In the sense that, well, people are going to know that I did that. People may never know what you did. Leadership is this, right? Especially those of you who say, well, I can't be a leader. I can't fill that need, right? I can't go kill those Philistines. I say, sure you can And this isn't me giving you a pep talk, telling you how awesome you are, because you're not awesome. (laughs) I I frequently say the message of the gospel is not that you're awesome. The message of the gospel is that you suck. If you didn't suck, you wouldn't need a savior in the first place. Okay? That's the truth. This isn't me trying to tell you, like, you know, increase your self-esteem, but rather to say that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's not that you can go kill 600 Philistines because you're awesome. It's because he's awesome and he who saves you changes you and equips you and empowers you to do the task at hand. That's why. You can step up. You can meet the need. Whether or not you think of yourself as a leader by simply saying, oh, there's a need. I'll meet it. I can meet it. I mean, I use the example, I think three or four weeks ago, we were in a small group, and I said, there's an elderly lady, she needs some furniture moved, okay? If anyone's willing or able to help. So, uh, Brandon Carpenter, he texted me the next day, he said, hey, could I get her phone number? I, I'd like to get some guys and go move her furniture. And then, I loved it, he asked me, he's like, do you know if she's a Christian? And uh, I love that. Like, I'm, I'm not thinking, like, just physical. Like, I'm thinking not just physical needs. I'm thinking, oh, like, what does she really need, right? I was really shocked. I mean, because he was 18 and kind of like Shamgar, a foreigner. He's Canadian, so. But I thought it was awesome. I thought it was awesome. But then I started thinking, you know, he easily could have said, well, I don't have a car because he doesn't have a car. I don't have a car, so I can't get over there, so I I can't meet that need. 
I love that. Because oftentimes what we do is we think, oh, well, I can't do that. I'm, I, man, I'm not big enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not strong enough. I can't go and fight those Philistines. I can't go and meet that need. And so we create all these excuses, all these reasons why we can't do the thing that needs to be done. And that's probably, I imagine, what's going on in the minds of these Israelites. 600 Philistines. I mean, it's like, what are you guys doing? Some of you guys have seen Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down. There's a scene. They're in Mogadishu, Somalia. Uh, 1993? Yeah, it's 93. It's during the Clinton administration. Okay, they're in there. It's supposed to be in and out mission. Easy peasy. It never goes like that in the military. It's never easy peasy. Um, and there's a scene where, where this one, you know, this one Joe, he's up on the gun turret, and you hear this ping, wisp, ping, crack, wisp, and uh, he's being shot at. It's pretty obvious. And then he's like, sir, sir, they're shooting at us. And the guy's like, well, then shoot back, right? Like, that's the obvious answer. Like, there's Philistines here. We're going to need to go kill them. And no one's going to go fight the Philistines. Right? There's a need here. Oh, well, I can't meet that need. Let someone else pick up the slack and go do that. See, those are the sorts of questions that we have to ask. If that's their failure, if their failure is that, and I say if, I understand this. I know some of you guys are super critical, okay? And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be at times. So there's if, if this is true, the structure then yeah, this is a failure in, in leadership. It's also a failure in personal responsibility. What are we called to do? Go and make disciples. That's pretty clear, right? Pretty clear. Go and make disciples. But what happens? Well, I can't go. Let me tell you right now. Bottom line, just up front. If you're not actively making disciples, you're sinning. You're, you're disobeying God. Oh, oh, you don't understand what's going on in my life right now, okay? I just got into a relationship. I just got a new job. Finances are tight. It's finals week, right? This is Christmas time. It's Advent. It's really, really busy. Do you don't understand? I just got married. I just had a kid. I just got a job. Just lost a job. Whatever it may be, right? I, I understand now. I remember that verse where Jesus says, go and make disciples unless any of those things apply to you. And you know what we do? We create these prerequisites that simply don't exist. There are no prerequisites to obeying Jesus. Okay, I'll say it again. There are no prerequisites, okay, when it comes to obeying Jesus. He says, go. Go make disciples. Not, if you're in a stage of life, you don't understand. I'm just a broken person, and I'm just, I'm not in a place where I can be discipling people. Yeah, I remember Jesus giving that clarification too. Said no one ever. Think about Jesus' disciples. These are not like all-star, like rocket scientist types. Once again, oftentimes, we buy into the lie of the enemy. Okay, I can't go and do that. I can't go and meet that need. I can't step up. I can't fill the gap. I'll give you all the reasons why. And that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm here to encourage you and say, I'm not saying you can because you're awesome. You're not awesome. Jesus is awesome. And Jesus can enable and Jesus can empower you to do the things that he wants you to do. And it might be simply seeing, I recognize a need. I need to fill the gap. If I don't fill the gap, the Philistines are coming through the gap. We've got to hold the line. So who's going to step up and do it?
You think about this story. Go and make disciples. Step up. Take leadership. Take personal responsibility. People say, well, I can't make disciples. I'm just not old enough. Who said anything about how old you were and how that matters? You might be 18 pouring into somebody who's older than you. Making disciples is helping other people submit more and more of their lives in totality to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, pointing them towards Scripture. And honestly, it might not even be you, maybe even like mentoring someone. You might disciple someone in a specific area. Maybe this person spiritually is just totally further along than you, but maybe they're just now for the very first time walking through a time in their life that, man, you've got kind of like a lot more experience in this one area. In every other area, man, they'd be discipling you, but maybe it's just one area, and you can help pull them to the next level. I say that because we, we come up with all these sorts of, like, like, roadblocks that you won't find anywhere in the Bible for why we can't do the very things that God has called us to do, God has called us to be. He doesn't say, go as long as everything lines up perfectly in your life. Everything's not going to line up perfectly in your life. It won't. And oh, by the way, if you're looking for a reason not to go and fight the Philistines, you'll find it. Every time you'll find it. And I I go on and I talk about giving, right? We're called to give. We're called to give generously. We're called to give sacrificially, okay? But but with the exception as if I'm a full-time college student, then, then, well, that's okay. God understands that. Yeah, I don't remember that verse either. You say, that's so hard. That's why they call it sacrificial giving, guys. I know it's hard. But Jesus doesn't call us to do easy things. Jesus calls us to do hard things. It's a hard thing to go and fight 600 Philistines. I imagine. Never have, but I imagine. And so often we just create these prerequisites when it comes to obeying Jesus, when it comes to stepping up and leading, when it comes to taking personal responsibility. We create all these prerequisites to obeying Him when There are no prerequisites to obeying him. And so Israel has become dependent in this story on someone else to do the very thing that they should be doing. It's an embarrassment if this story is as I think it very much is. It's an embarrassment for them. And it reminds us the story of Shamgar reminds us of the expectations of God. God expects his people to obey. This story of Shamgar serves as an embarrassing warning against complacency, an embarrassing warning against excuses, and oh, by the way, settling. People are settling. The people are settling. And more than that, more than that, the people are going to miss the blessings that God has for them. That's the other part of this. Israel is going to miss the blessings that God has for them. Every single military engagement in the book of Judges, every single one, is taking back land that Joshua took. There is not a single military engagement that occurs in this book in which Israel ever actually takes new land. Land that had been promised to them. That's what I say when I I say, here's the other side of the coin. They're missing out. God said, here's the land. Take it. 
in their settling, in their complacency, in their failure to take personal responsibility to lead when they need to lead, to step up, to fill the gap. This has all occurred. This has all happened. And so the entire time they're playing catch-up, and it seems like Israel, like Israel, we would rather sit on the couch in complacency than grab hold of the tickets to the week-long cruise in the Caribbean. We are far too easily pleased. And like Israel, we settle, and settling, settling's not even about being content, guys. Settling, in this instance, is, it's about disobedience to the king. The king who came to save us from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, I'm thankful that he did. I'm thankful that he is a good God. I'm thankful that he is a good king. And so, the story serves today, I think, a reminder, a warning for us. If, okay, if it is, as I think it is, failure on the part of Israel to lead, to take responsibility. This is a constant threat for us. The canonization of Israel is not just something that they experience. We're constantly being pulled by the world to be more like the world. It's a challenge that we all face. It's a battle that we all face. And I'm not sitting here saying it's easy, standing here saying it's easy. But rather I'm saying that as difficult as it may be, the thought of having to go fight 600 Philistines, you have a greater ally than the one that did come to save you from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you We thank you, God, for living the life we could not live, for dying the death we should have died, for paying the price we could not afford to pay. Lord, um, Shamgar is an interesting story. It seems, God, that there is a constant struggle, a battle, a tension for us all. Are we going, are we going to obey you, are we going to fill the gap or are we going to pass the buck and let someone else do it? Lord, help us. Encourage those, God, who, those of us who need encouragement. Encourage us, Lord. Help us in the areas that we struggle with, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.